Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this series, Genesis, A New Perspective, we are trying to breathe fresh life into this ancient text that lays the foundation for the Christian Bible. Each week, we will be exploring different ways that these Genesis stories impact us and the world around us and our ways of understanding God. I hope you enjoy. This week, we continue our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer with the next petition, the next request in Jesus' prayer, give us this day our daily bread. But before I get into it, I'd like to read to you an excerpt from Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now. And this excerpt will actually shape the larger dynamic of the discussion that we're going to be having today. Joel writes... Early in our marriage, Victoria and I, and Victoria is his wife, by the way, were out walking through our neighborhood one day when we came upon a beautiful new home in the final stages of construction. The doors were open, so we stepped inside and looked around. It was a lovely, inspiring place. When we came out of the house, Victoria was excited. She turned around, looked back at the home, and said, Joel. One day, we're going to live in a beautiful home just like that. At the time, we were living in an extremely old house that had experienced some foundation problems. We had stretched our faith and spent everything we had just to buy that home and get into that neighborhood. Thinking of our bank account and my income at the time, it seemed impossible to me that we'd ever work our way up to a home like the one we had toured. But Victoria had much more faith than I did, and she would not give up. She convinced me that we could live in an elegant home like the one we saw. I got rid of my limited thinking and started agreeing with her. I started believing that somehow, some way, God could bring it to pass. That's from pages 7 and 8 of the first chapter. Let me give you a little bit of background on Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen is the pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. Lakewood is the largest church in the country with more than 43,000 people attending every single week. They are located in the former arena for the Houston Rockets, and their annual income for 2011 was $88 million. Suffice it to say, Joel Osteen is one of the most popular pastors in the world, and this is not by accident. Joel's message is simple yet powerful. The more you believe, the more faith you have in God, the more God will reward you with wealth and success. That's a pretty nice message, wouldn't you agree? I think that's a message everybody wants to hear. It's at the centerpiece of every sermon that he preaches, and people just eat it up. In the theological world, this is known as the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is a version or an interpretation of the gospel that came about some 70 years ago, and it centers around the idea that God's will for Christians is that they be financially blessed. Indeed, it is this guarantee of financial success that has caused many people who have heard Joel's preaching to give their lives to Christianity. Joel is not the first person to use the prosperity gospel in his sermons, but he is the first person to perfect it. The reason why the prosperity gospel is only seven years old is because it is complete and total garbage. And I say that with all sincerity. 
If you have ever taken the time to read the Gospels, any of them, you will quickly come to find that Jesus' message is the exact opposite of Joel's message. Let me give you a few choice scriptures to show you the contradiction between what Joel is saying and what Jesus is saying. Let's take, for instance, Luke chapter 12, where Jesus says, Be on your guard for all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then a few verses later, Jesus continues and says, Sell your possessions and give alms. What he means by giving alms is give donations to the poor. Make for yourselves purses that will not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven. Jesus does not mince words when it comes to the issue of wealth and salvation. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth. And perhaps the most damaging statement that Jesus ever makes in any of the Gospels, the most challenging statement that he makes, is when he says, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even life itself, cannot become my disciple. Whoever comes to me and does not pick up the cross and follow me cannot become my disciple. So therefore, no one can become my disciple unless you are willing to give up all of your possessions. That is Luke chapter 14, verses 26, 27, and 33. Let me give you a little summarization of what all these verses are talking about, because I think they're all getting at one basic message. Jesus did not come to this earth to give us more of what the world offers. Jesus did not suffer and die on the cross so that we could have bigger houses, and better jobs. Jesus asks everything of us. He asks us to give our entire lives to his cause. He asks us to sacrifice everything, money, possessions, and even our families. Nothing can be more important than loving and following him. And if you're not willing to do that, then he doesn't want you. Now that's a message nobody wants to hear. That one went over a lot better than the first two services. (laughs) You all didn't really laugh at that one. People actually thought that was kind of funny. I once heard a pastor say that if you're preaching the gospel message correctly, that your congregation will slowly become smaller. And the reason why he said this is because Jesus' message is a tough message. There aren't many people who really have what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus' message is one that is full of love and forgiveness and hope and grace. But you know what? Even though these things should be emphasized, and we do try to emphasize them a lot here, you also have to take very seriously these scriptures that I just quoted to you because the essence of the Christian life is a life of sacrifice. The earliest Christians were obsessive about following Jesus' teachings. This is why many of them were extreme pacifists, and the majority of them gave away their money and possessions to help the poor. If you were to pick up any book on the early history of Christianity, you would find it littered with examples of people who gave up everything to follow Jesus. Now, you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, good for them. I'm living in the 21st century, and I kind of like my life, and I don't really want to change. 
And I can tell you this is the reaction that I often have when I start reading the Gospels, which is, I kind of like my life the way it is. I don't really want to make it much different than it is right now. But the more I get into the Gospels, which is something I tend to do a lot in my profession, I come away with the sense that Jesus actually expects us to be like them. Jesus expects us to change. Now, I don't want you to hear me as being judgmental. Because just because I'm the guy up here saying all these words, it doesn't mean that I have it all figured out and you don't. I'm in the same boat that you all are in. And I know exactly what you would like me to say, because it's what I want to hear too. You want me to say, okay guys, you know what? The way we're living, it's okay. You don't need to drastically change your life. Jesus' expectations of us are a bit unrealistic. He didn't really mean it when he said you need to sell all your possessions and give away all your money. He was just being hyperbolic. So you know what? Just keep living the way you're living. Don't worry about it. And if in the end we're wrong, well, hey, it's forgiven, forget anyway, right? So don't worry about it. Now that's what Joel Osteen would say. And I wish that were true. I live in a wonderful house. It's a great place to raise children. I have all kinds of little things that I love to play with, like computers. I love playing with my computer, editing videos. It's awesome. I have a bump and stereo system attached to it, listening to my music, watching movies. I'm saving for retirement. I'm saving for Eli and Lucas's college fund. I can eat whatever I want to eat whenever I want to eat it. I'm living the American dream. And common wisdom would tell me that I deserve this. I worked very, very hard for a long time to get into some extremely prestigious schools. Though I probably shouldn't admit this to you out loud, I am not a very naturally intelligent person. I have to literally slave over my books to learn the information, like pounding it into my brain. I spent an average of six hours per night working on my homework each night when I was in high school, plus another two and a half hours in the pool. As a result of that, I got into Rice University, which at the time was ranked number 11 in the country in academics. It was always usually paired up right against Brown, which was our Ivy League equivalent. I worked hard at Rice. I got into Oxford University in England. And then I ended up getting my theological master's at Princeton Seminary. And yet, as hard as I have worked for all of my degrees and for the position that I have in this church, I will tell you right now, that I don't deserve any of it. I think it is a mythology that we place hard work next to feeling deserving of having something. Why do I deserve what I have any more than the thousands of people who are born into poverty every single day? It was the luck of the draw, the roll of the dice. I happened to be born into a family in America that had the means to nurture me. My family did go through some very difficult financial times when I was younger, but eventually they did have the money to pay for my schooling. And when I came out of all of my schooling, which took a while, I was totally debt-free, which not many people can say these days. So I just took advantage of the opportunities that were laid at my feet. But I do not, for one moment, believe that I deserve what I have any more than the next person. What I've been given in this life has not been given to me for any merit I possess. I could have just as easily been born into the slums of India and had none of those opportunities. So every time I walk into my house, 
Every time I pray a blessing over the meal, I hear those scriptures rattling around in the back of my brain. I hear Jesus' voice speaking to me. And he's saying, Alex, the way you are living, it is not good enough. I have given you so much, and you use the vast majority of it for yourself. This humbling thought is what leads us into the petition, the request that we are making of God today in our prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Now, you don't need to be a theologian to figure out what this is talking about. Pretty much what we're asking God is to give us what we need to sustain us through our day. Not more than we need, just what we need. The problem is we've convinced ourselves that we need a lot more than we have to sustain us through our days. Why was Joel Osteen upset about living in a house with some foundation problems? 14% of people in the world, that's more than a billion people, have no home whatsoever to speak of at all. 75% of people in the world can't even afford to sleep on a mattress. So obviously, whatever house a lot of people are living in isn't that great. The Osteen theology is a theology that feeds into the belief that what we have is never enough. But the scripture that we read today tells us that if we strive to live the life that Jesus asks us to live, that God will provide for our basic needs. And by basic needs, I really do mean basic needs. Basic needs is not code for a big fancy mansion. Jesus says, do not worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? But strive first for God's kingdom and his righteousness. And these things will be given to you as well. You hear in that where he's saying you have to strive for God's kingdom if you want your basic needs taken care of. And in my first sermon on this series, I actually talked about some of the attributes that define God's kingdom. So let's talk about those real quick. So in God's kingdom, nobody suffers. Everybody has enough food to eat. Everybody has clothes on their back. Everybody has a roof over their head. Everyone's treated for their illnesses. Nobody is forgotten. But let's flesh it. Is that Jesus? Is he calling? (laughs) Tell him I'm getting to the point soon. (laughs) But I want to flesh out what this looks like. What is the society that Jesus is speaking of? Like, what does it really look like? Well, I can tell you right now that it's a society that many of you probably wouldn't want to live in. Our lives would be very, very simple. We wouldn't have a lot of extra money for possessions or things. I wouldn't live in the home I'm in right now. I can guarantee you that much. I wouldn't have my computer. I wouldn't have my fancy stereo system with surround sound. I wouldn't probably even have a car. And you know what? When I think about giving up all that stuff, there's a part of me that gets really defensive. There's a part of me that says, I worked really hard. I did everything I was supposed to do to get where I am. Why should I have to give that up? But then if I take a step back from my defensive posture, I realize that, in truth, I don't really need all of those things. Yes, they're nice, and these are things that really make our lives better than they are. But do I really need them? Well, no, I don't. And so sometimes when I'm trying to figure out what is it that I need to do, how do I need to 
live in a way that God is going to be, look at me and say, you know what, you're striving for God's kingdom. Well, I have to take a step back and I have to say, you know what, Alex, I need to live differently than I am. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, Alex, well, looking at that, looking at the way that Jesus wants us to live, where's the motivation and reward to really make it work? Because in every society that has ever attempted this kind of lifestyle, it has failed miserably. And let's be honest, what is the kind of lifestyle that we're talking about? We're talking about a lifestyle where we're sharing everything equally, where everybody has the same. And I'm perfectly aware of that. I know the history of communism and socialism just as well as you do. But you have to realize that communism and socialism are actually derived from the Bible. Acts chapter 2. That's where these ideas actually come from. So the thing is, though, what you have to realize is that Jesus' understanding of the way the world should be is very different from those societies, the way they ended up panning out. So in Jesus' world, what you have to realize is that there is no government forcing you to give away your money and your possessions. In Jesus' society, you do that of your own free will. And in case you're wondering, who in their right mind would actually do that? Well, Jesus' disciples did that. They did it of their own free will all the time. They not only gave up all of their possessions, but what they also gave up many times was their very lives. Their motivation for doing this, since in our world we're into motivation and reward, their motivation for doing this was knowing that they were living out Jesus' teachings. They wanted to do that. And then their reward was knowing that they were doing what Jesus was asking of them. Now that might sound kind of silly and simplistic, but in truth, if everybody who called themselves a Christian lived that way, if we all put our motivation out there to say, I just want to do what Jesus is asking of me, then I think Jesus' society would actually function and work. And so I want to end today with one final point. And it's a point that I actually made in my first sermon in this series. But I want to kind of expand on it a little bit, which is to say that Jesus' society doesn't exist because we have not yet created it. In that first sermon, I told you that we are God's hands in the world. We are the ones responsible for creating God's kingdom. We are the ones responsible for creating Jesus' society. And I want to leave you today with one simple rule. One rule that can drastically change the world we live in if you are willing to implement it in your life. And the rule goes like this. If you are able to recognize that what you have been given in this life has been given to you by God, not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, not because you are owed it, but because God gave it to you so that you could create God's kingdom here on earth, then you will also understand that God gave you all those things so that you could give it back. The plain and simple truth that the scriptures convey to us over and over again is that if you have been blessed with wealth and success, and that's every single person in this sanctuary, including me, that God has placed a great burden on your shoulders. God gave you everything so that you could give it back to those who have less. You are God's hands in the world, 
You are the ones responsible for creating the society Jesus envisioned. And if you are willing to set aside everything that you hold dear, your money, your possessions, and yes, even your families, to live the life that Jesus expects us to live, then I believe that Jesus is society, that it can become a reality in this world. Now that's my sermon for today. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, great, let's go to lunch. We're good. Get out of here. Now what I've laid out for you, this idea, it's, you know, it's nice to think about and everything, but it's very hard to implement in our lives. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, it is. That's why I still have my computer at home that I love playing with, right? So what I want you to know is that over the next year, we're going to be developing a mission in our church, a focus for our church to serve the community around us. This mission is going to try to involve every single person, from the youngest to the oldest, because I want to give everybody in here a focus, a way of giving back what has been given to them. Because I just tell you, go and give back, and you're like, okay, I'm going to try and do my best. But if we have a focus, then we can pool our resources, and we can do something a lot more impactful together. And so I want you to know that that's coming, that I'm not just telling you this and saying, bye-bye, have a good life, we're going to be fine, and go give back all your stuff. No, we're going to work together, and together we're really going to give back as a community. So next week, we're going to talk about how we bring this mentality, which is a hard mentality to take on, into our hearts and minds, because it is challenging. And it has to do with the next petition. It has to do with forgiveness. And I'm very much looking forward to telling you about that because everything we've talked about up to this point hinges on forgiveness. Until next week, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.